0: My title, if you're um, taking notes, is this Children of Violence. We've been talking about uh, from the book of Jonah here for, I guess, five weeks now. We're going to do one more. and so, yeah, I want to talk about violence and anger. I'm sure probably a lot of you guys, probably all of you, have um, been experiencing and, and sort of keeping up, probably most of you, maybe not all of you, on kind of all like the sex scandal stuff that's been going on lately. If you haven't been keeping up on that, well, bravo, you're probably happier than the rest of us. Um, <laughs> But it's just been such a crazy time. It all started with, I think, the Harvey Weinstein guy, and then um, it kind of just cascaded from there. And so I actually have for you, I just made a list. I I was writing down people, and these are just like, the A-list kind of big shot people who have um, been accused of and um, of sexual abuse of some sort, so much so that they have been disciplined in one way or another. And so uh, I'm going to make a point, but I just wanted to go through a few of them. Uh, This is just the few that I, (laughs) just a few that I got off the internet. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, and I'm going to mispronounce all of their names. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, producer, Andy Signor is a vice president, Roy Price, TV studio head, Chris Savino is a TV show creator and showrunner, uh, Robert Scoble is a tech blogger, Lockhart Steele editorial director, Josh Besch uh, is a CEO, Josh Toback is a director and writer, Terry Richardson photographer, Leon Weiss-Seltier, he's an editor, Knight Lanesman is a publisher, Rich Najera is a director. Mark Halpernin is a news contributor. Uh, Ken Baker, news correspondent. Of course, Kevin Spacey, an actor. Hamilton Fish is a publisher. Michael Oreskes is a newspaper editor. Andy Dick is an actor. Kerr Webster is a publicist. Brent Ratner is a producer and director. Jeff uh, Hovers, a politician. David Guy Laud is a CEO, Ed Westwick is an actor, Benjamin Ginocchio, CEO, Roy Moore, politician, Louis C.K. is a comedian, Andrew Kreisberg is a producer, Eddie Berganza is an editor, Steve Jurvetson is a venture capitalist, and of course, Al Franken is a politician. So um, my point is this, that's 30 people, and that's 42 days. So I think that's pretty incredible, and I um, my point, one of the points that I'm making here is, is it spans across religions, they span across political party, they span across nationality, they span across upbringing, and I think it's been a really interesting time, at least for me, to kind of um, think about my heart, and also it's not just big shot celebrities. I I was talking to um, Jesse, who's in the police academy, and he told me, and I actually had to text Gordon Eden, who is the police chief. I had to confirm it because I thought it was so amazing. But he said that APD, just our own APD, gets 50 to 100 uh, domestic violence calls per day. Can you imagine that? Like just on an average day, 100 domestic violence calls every single day. I think mean, it's so, so crazy, and so for me, I've kind of just been in this place where I've been looking in my own heart, you know, because when I think about these people and, like, these men, um, people who are made in God's image and infinitely valuable, uh, in, in one sense, I, I look at them and I realize that, for me, I'm somebody who has preached grace and mercy for a really long time, and um, that that grace and mercy is, is not just for the oppressed, but it's also for the oppressor. Um, but then there's other times when I like look at the faces of those guys and I just think, God, I hate you. Like I really, really, and nothing would please me more than to see those guys just like rot in a cell for the rest of their lives. Um, and so it's been kind of weird. I've been kind of like faced with that conflict in my, in my own heart, kind of thinking, um, who am I and where am I and all of this stuff? And on, on one hand, I think that all of this stuff coming to light is a really good thing. I think things coming to light is a biblical, godly thing. Of course, people are going to be saying like, well, what about the abuse? You know, Are, are now women going to be saying like that there's stuff that wasn't abuse? And I'm sure that that's probably true in any sort of movement, but I, I do think that if you're somebody who comes really hard against the women, you're someone who's going to find yourself on the wrong side of history. I'm here pretty Shortly, but I do think that it's something that, as a net hole, is is probably a good thing, um, where where we're starting to realize and that stuff's t- to be tolerated less and less. But I just I just kind of I hate when when I find myself in like the violence, the violence of the world becomes violence in my own heart, and um, and that's something that really that really bums bums me out. And so the the book and the story of Jonah really for me. This past week has been something that really has hit home. And this, if I'm being honest, this message tonight is the message that I've been waiting to preach from uh, the book of Jonah uh, throughout the entire series. So we're going to get into it. We're talking about violence and anger. Jonah chapter 3. And we're going to read like a whole chapter and then five verses. But this is chapter 3, verse 1. And then we're going to go all the way to the um, chapter 4 and verse 5. If you don't have your Bible, of course, we've got the words on the screen. It says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But then listen to this, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when you When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city." Okay, so just to, um, to bring you guys up to speed, if you haven't been here, Jonah has been called by God to go to this city of Nineveh, which is the capital of this empire, Assyria, and Assyria is like this rising imperialistic world power, but what a lot of, a lot of people don't know is it was incredibly, brutally violent, in fact, just check out a few scriptures from 2 Kings. Then Pull, king of Assyria, invaded the land. T- uh, Tiglath, Pilesar, king of Assyria, came and deported the people. Shalmanessar, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. So just pay attention to those three words. Invading is what happens when you raise an army and then march into another country and take it over using uh, force and power and violence. Deporting, deporting is what happens when you capture the inhabitants of said country you've invaded and forcibly remove them from their homes and jobs and towns and land and then take them far away. Laying siege is what happens when you surround a city with your army and in doing this, sever the city from its food and water so that so many people are starving and suffering and dying that eventually they give up and surrender." So these, this is what the Assyrian army is known for. They're mean, brutish people, and they oppressed God's people, the Israelites, for generation after generation and after generation. And so Jonah, of course, he's kind of like God's man. When he understands this about Assyria, his response to their violence um, is anger, right? And what he wants is he wants them punished. And if you're someone who has ever, uh, been a victim of any sort of abuse or um, violence or harassment, you probably understand the inclination of wanting there to be uh, retribution. But God responds to to the Assyrians in a really interesting way. You could say it like this: God rejects the violence of Nineveh and the poisonous anger of Jonah. Both. God rejects the violence of Nineveh and the poisonous anger of Jonah. And we see in this story, what I'm wanting to talk about is we see two surprising sources of anger. So uh, number one is this, and I'm going to use some big words tonight, you guys. So just brace yourself. Uh, Number one is this moral relativism. It's a source of violence, moral relativism. What that means is this, is that morals are just relative. You know what I mean? Like there's no absolute truth. What's true for me and what's true for you could be totally different. But there is no absolute truth. What is true for you might just be something that's true for you uh, only. And you can see this in the Assyrians in these wicked people. Uh, the Assyrians, uh, we've, told, we've told you this before, but the Assyrians are polytheistic. It means that they, they, there wasn't this idea of them just being, there being one God. In fact, there was lots of different gods. And so it's interesting to ask yourself these, this question, like why were all of these ancient polytheistic cultures so violent? Like think about, think about even like the, the best ones. Think about Greece and think about Rome. Well, for entertainment, you know what they did? Remember the gladiators, right, in the arena. So what they would do is they would essentially force prisoners to battle like lions. And, and they would just be eaten by the lions. And everyone would just drink their sodas and just cheer. You know what I mean? Like it was an incredibly brutal, uh, incredibly brutal culture. Uh, you can see in certain points of history that, that if they would, have, they would have like a girl baby, they would just throw them away throw them away. Because who would want a girl baby? Um, Absolutely zero care for the poor. These were these polytheistic cultures. And so you might be thinking like, why were these polytheistic many gods, why were these cultures so incredibly violent? Well, St. Augustine um, in the fifth century, he talks about it and he, he basically breaks it down like this. Well, if there's one true God, right, there's one true God at the center of the universe, well, then the universe is inherently peaceful. Right? There's one lawmaker, and so it's inherently peaceful. But if there's lots of different gods, and they're all at war with each other, then at the center of the world is violence, and things like peace and things like justice are just kind of unnatural in this violent world. And so you might be thinking like, well, that's kind of an old and outdated worldview, polytheism, but not as much as you might think. Really, it's, it's kind of similar. Think about this. If you were to go to like some liberal arts university right now, they would tell you that what is at the center of the world is Darwinian evolution. And so um, you think about that, that's different than, um, than theistic evolution, which is millions of Christians around the world would adhere to the idea of God guiding evolution. You think whatever you want, but Darwinian evolution is random, and the whole idea is this, the strong eat the weak. That's the idea, the strong eat the weak. And so at the center of the world, the center of Darwinian evolution is... Um, is violence. And but and so I wonder if you could think about it. Can you go there with me? Think about um, a, a world where there is no one God, right? And so there's no one truth. Right? Because who's to decide who who's to decide what is true? C. S. Lewis talks about this in mere Christianity, if you would imagine, imagine a culture. That has no absolute truth. This would be a culture where where men were running, running, and and like fleeing as cowards in battle, and thinking that that's a thing to be celebrated. It'd be totally weird. But but if there's no one true lawgiver, then no one is to say what is true um, and not true. Uh, um, Ayn Rand, she's a really famous relativist. She writes this big monstrosity of a book, twelve hundred pages, called Atlas Shrugged. Don't waste your time. She says, uh, she says, she says this achievement of your happiness is the only moral purpose of your life, and that happiness is the proof of your moral integrity. Hear that? Achievement of your happiness is the only moral purpose of your life, and that happiness is the proof of your moral integrity. So that's so stupid, it makes my knees weak. You know what I mean? Like the the whole point, the only thing that the whole purpose of life is your own, um, is your own personal happiness, and that's just dumb. I hope there's something on the inside of you that says like that's profoundly ridiculous. But a relativist would say this: Well, that's that's her truth. You know what I mean? That's her truth. That's maybe not your truth, but that's her truth. And listen, that might be true, but that doesn't mean that it's true, right? It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that it's, right? And so you can see this. History would tell us that moral relativism, where there's no one absolute source of truth, is a source of violence and oppression historically. Um, but that's not, that's not the only source um, of violence in the story. Listen, uh, source of violence number two in the story is this, get ready, more big words, religious moralism. And I know those are weird because it's like an MR, then it's an RM. It seems like a weird thing. Here's the idea of religious moralism. Religious moralism is where at the core of who you are, the most important thing for you is morality. That's the most important thing. And that might sound pretty good. That might kind of sound pretty good to people? It's like, yeah, if I don't have my morals, I don't have anything. It's Religious moralism is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ because it has no room for things like grace. It has no room for things like charity. You know what I mean? Like thinking about giving, giving some, something to someone who doesn't deserve it. Like, like the moralist has no uh, room for that. And so you can see here that not only are the Assyrians, these kind of like pagan people, are, not only are they a source of violence, but so is Jonah in his own, in his own um, righteousness, thinking that he's better than everyone else. Uh, Jonah preaches, he goes into the city and he's, he essentially says this, like, give up your evil ways. It's like a super half-hearted sermon, right? It's like five words uh, in the Hebrew. He doesn't even care that much. But what's incredible is this: they do it. They all they all repent. Even the animals repent in the story. <laughs> <laughs> like the cows fast. It's an incredible story. Uh, but they all, they all repent, and you would expect this to be like the apex of um, the career of Jonah. He has just become the most successful Hebrew prophet in the history of the world. You'd expect the book to just end uh, with chapter three. Like, they all repent, God relents, and Moses um, returns home to his homeland rejoicing, Like you would assume something like that, but that's not what happens. In fact, there's this whole other chapter, the last chapter, chapter four, uh, where Jonah is crying and distraught at the fact that God would show mercy. In fact, uh, let's see, uh, verse one says this, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. In the original Hebrew, this phrase is interesting, uh, became angry. It literally says that he became evil with the evil he saw. He became evil with the sea, evil. He's like, can anyone relate to that? He saw so much evil that what was produced on the inside of them was evil. I think of my responses that we were talking about at the beginning of the sermon. I think of my response when it comes to someone who is um, guilty of sexual abuse. I see the evil, and then without even realizing it, I become evil with the evil I see. And that's what you can see in Jonah. He, Jonah wants violence. What he wants, he wants fireballs. He wants Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and then when, when that's not what happens, he gets mad. Jonah is essentially mad because there's not violence, right? That's the whole idea. God's guy, God's man is so angry. Um, he's, he's saying this, like, these are wicked people. God, like, why don't you bomb them? And when God does not bomb them, he gets really, really mad. And so Jonah has a different kind of violence. He, has a violence. he has a violence that's not necessarily in his actions. He has a violence in his own heart. And I wonder if you can appreciate this, is that, is that Jonah, is not, Jonah is not violent in spite of being religious and moral. Jonah is violent because he's religious and because he's moral. Like these are bad people. We need to destroy them. But that's not what happens and he gets really mad. Um, You could say it like this. My next slide. The problem with religious moralism is it gives you a reason to think you're better than everyone else. The problem with religious moralism is it gives you a reason to think you're better than everyone uh, else. And religious moralism, no matter how good, no matter how it looks, it like looks like a holy thing, in it is hidden seeds of oppression, abuse of power, and violence. And you can see this in his prayer. The next verse, verse two, uh, Jonah says this, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Can you see the anger? Can you see the violence dripping from his words? He's saying this, I knew you were compassionate. You know, like hair-trigger, compassionate, and, and then he would say this, like, just kill me because I, I, would rather, I would rather die than live in a universe ruled by a God like you. And um, so it's, it's interesting to see that, that, that not only are the Assyrians violent, but the Christian, if you would, the God follower here is violent as well. Think about this. Where did the violence come from that killed Jesus? Was it from the bad guys? Was it, from the, was it from the wicked? No, middle-class, religious, moral people. And so the, the summary of this idea, I just want, want you to get it. The summary here is moral relativism and religious moralism are both seeds for violence. I know those are some big words. What this means is this, is that every kind of person from every culture has the potential for violence and oppression, even you. I know, I know probably when we think about violence and oppression, we tend to think that it comes from people who are anybody but ourselves, right? Anybody but our kind of people. But this shows us that both, both the secular people and the religious people are both sources of violence, and so, so it kind of comes, and what's really interesting here, I think, is it shows us a really cool strategy when it comes to violence. And it doesn't come, this probably shouldn't surprise anyone, it doesn't come from the Assyrians, right? They don't know what they're doing. It doesn't come from Jonah. He's a dork the whole time. It comes, it comes from God, obviously, right? And so, so here's the question. How does God handle violent, uh, violence in the city of Nineveh? How does he handle it? Um, well, he sends a messenger right, to them, Jonah, and he gives a brutal ultimatum. He says this, he says, the the evil and the violence stops or you will be destroyed. That's what he says. He said, like, can you see how there's no wiggle room there? You know what I mean? Like you stop or you die. You know what I mean? Like you guys all repent or I will kill you all, saith the Lord in the book of Jonah. And so it's interesting because on one hand, it's brutally tough. You know what I mean? Like what God would come and say was like super tough. Like, oh my God, he's going to kill everybody? In, but on the other hand, it's really tender in that, that he would come and give this message through just like this one man. And he would take this one man into this city that could, that could so easily have just killed him. But they don't. And so there's, so there's this beautiful vulnerability in the message um, of Jesus as well. And I think, um, should I, let me say this. I probably should have said this early on. This sermon is not about American foreign policy. Okay, so if you're trying to think, like, what is he saying about North Korea? I'm not saying anything. There's literally nothing in here about North Korea. Um, I'm talking to the Christians uh, who, who have violence in our hearts. That's what I'm talking about, okay? Um, this shows us two, two wrong reactions when it comes to wrongdoing. And what I mean by that is this when someone, when someone hurts you, when someone abuses you, when somebody wrongs you, um, when someone cuts cuts deep on the inside of you. This story shows us that there are two things that God does not allow. Number one is this, vengeance. And get this, the other one is this, resignation. He doesn't allow vengeance, nor does he allow resignation. See, vengeance, vengeance is about wounding the wrongdoer, right? It's about, I, I have been hurt, so I want to hurt. It's a, it's a way of dealing with your pain, and it's completely, it's completely um, forbidden to all followers of Jesus Christ. Vengeance, vengeance is never to be ours. Uh, think about resignation, the other one. Resignation, it's more like, um, just let it go. Just forget it. Just move on. Just like, don't talk about it. Just put it under the rug. It's also a way of dealing with your pain. And it's dealing with your pain by avoiding your pain. And it is also not the way of the Christ follower. But I'm going to say this, that resignation, Christians do this all day long. Christians think that resignation is almost, in a lot of ways, the right way to handle conflict. You know, like they think that they're doing like the right thing. But but both resignation and vengeance, neither one of them is concerned with truth and neither one of them is concerned with justice. And so on the surface, those two things, vengeance and resignation, they seem very different. You know, like on one hand, you have the wounder. Anybody know the wounder? On the other hand, you have the avoider, right, when it comes to uh, pain. But they're both ultimately dealing with their pain in a selfish way. Because in both ways, it's dealing with their own hurt and it's trying to exclude um, the wrongdoer. In both cases. In one case, it's by actively wounding them, and another, the other, it's trying to cut them out uh, completely. And the excluder, I think, can, can tend to kind of like look more holy, um, but really it's kind of the same thing. It's just trying, it's trying to wound maybe in a different way. And so, so if, if the Bible, or if God doesn't allow either vengeance or resignation, well, what does he um, allow? And the answer is Forgiveness which is something that's really different. And so I think people would, might think like, well, forgiveness, yeah, forgiveness, um, not vengeance. Forgiveness, not vengeance. Yeah, I, I pretty much get that. But, but forgiveness is also not resignation. Um, people, people think forgiveness is just not talking about it. And that's, that's not true. Like think about God handling Nineveh. Did he just, did he just go and say, I'm just, I'm just gonna let it go and I'm just gonna not talk about it? No, no, he didn't do that. And in fact, you can even see this in the words of Jesus. Jesus Jesus does not say we pay back evil with evil, nor does Jesus say like we just blow past it. He says this, that we overcome evil with good. But I hope you can see that that's a much more active thing than just act like it didn't happen. Um, And so so I, I love this definition. This is a definition that I heard one time. I wrote it down. I thought it was so smart. About forgiveness. And so here's the definition um, that I'd like to present to you tonight. Forgiveness is dealing with and getting rid of your hate and anger before you deal with the wrongdoer. Forgiveness is dealing with and getting rid of your hate and anger before you deal with the wrongdoer. See, with with vengeance, with vengeance, you're you're dealing with your anger while you're dealing with the wrongdoer. Right? It all happens in one big conversation where you're dealing with your pain and you're dealing with the wrongdoer, but that's not forgiveness. But you think about resignation. Resignation is not dealing with either, right? It's just, it's just blowing um, past. Uh, Miroslav Volf, he's a super cool theologian. Great name, Miroslav. He's from uh, Croatia. He, he says this, forgiveness is not a substitute for justice. Forgiving someone does not mean you demand no change in the perpetrator. In fact, forgiveness provides a framework in which justice can, be fruitfully, can fruitfully be pursued. I mean, that's so brilliant. Listen to this. Forgiveness is not a substitute for justice. Forgiving someone does not mean you demand no change in the perpetrator. In fact, forgiveness provides a framework in which justice can fruitfully be pursued. Translation is this, is you're never going to do justice um, if you don't forgive. You know what I mean? Like, like if you want, if you want justice and you're unwilling to forgive, you're not going to find, um, you're not going to find justice. And and if all you care about is justice, then evil wins. You know what I mean? Because it's just going to be, it's just going to be eye for an eye. A eye for an eye is just right. I mean, tit for tat. That is just. Um, but but there's no. But it's not real justice. And so people oftentimes think that what they have to do is they have to choose between justice and forgiveness. And that's never the case. You never choose between justice and forgiveness because without forgiveness, there is, um, there is no real justice. Without forgiveness, you're never gonna get justice. Um, you could say it like this. If you haven't forgiven someone when you go and confront them, you're not doing it for their sake. You're not doing it, uh, you're not doing it for God's sake. You're doing it for your sake, right? And, and you overdo it. You end up wounding. You know When you, when you confront outside of forgiveness, you overshoot. You know what I mean, and, and you say more than you should have said. However, if you forgive and then you confront, I think you can actually talk about justice. Miroslav Volv, uh, my next slide, this quote is just so brilliant. Next slide. If you want justice and nothing but justice, you will inevitably get injustice. If you want justice without injustice, you must want love. And by the way, he knows a lot about forgiveness, another sermon. If you want justice and nothing but justice, you will inevitably get injustice. If you want justice without injustice, you must want love. And so most of you in the room, I think I could say this. Most of you are not vengeance people, right? Like somebody bad mouths you and then you go and like key their car, like, I don't, think, I don't think the majority of you are those types of people, but, but let me tell you, I think the majority of you, a lot of you, are gonna be, when someone wrongs you, what you're gonna do is you're gonna hate them on the inside and say nothing on the outside. And what's so sick is, like, I think we have a tendency of thinking that that is forgiveness. That's the opposite of forgiveness. I, I, I was listening to a podcast, and they, a, a guy said this, and I've just been thinking about it like crazy, but he said, he said this, that war... War is not conflict. War is the inability to have conflict. Because pe- people, people go to war when they can't, they no longer can have conversation, when they no longer can, can stand being in the same uh, room as each other. Forgiveness re- requires that you deal with your hurt and then be willing to confront. And, that, and I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians don't do that. And they think they think that what they're doing is something that is justice, but that's just not, that's not the example that we see in the Bible. And so I wanna be just super practical um, tonight, as practical as I can be. I'm, I'm trying to be more practical, you guys. I, I would say it like this. The secret to forgiving is not about what you do, it's about who you are. The secret to forgiving is not about what you do, it's about who you are. In order for you to be a true forgiver, you have to find your identity as a forgiven person. But but until but until you until that's something that's real on the inside of you that you're a forgiven person, it's always going to be really hard for you to forgive. This next verse, verse 4 says this, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? That's like the key to the whole book. Is it right for you to be angry? He basically he's asking Jonah, "Hey, do you have do you have a right to be angry?" Do you have a right to be angry? The, the only way that you can have sustained bitterness against a person is if you feel like you're better than them. Besides that, it's impossible. Um, like, like, think about, think about the uh, sexual abuse perpetrators that we talked about that I'm currently struggling with in my own personal life. Well, um, it works really good for me to have a lot of hatred pointed towards them, um, until I remember that I have also been forgiven of a lot, and w- and when that becomes really real to me, like I think I think the hatred kind of starts melting away, and I think it would be I I hope you could appreciate how deeply ironic it would be, and this is actually happening, so it's weird. But let's say there's a guy and he has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to be guilty of like sexual assault, and then he takes to Twitter and starts criticizing all of these other people for sexual assault. It's like ironic because um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work when you find yourself in the same boat. And I would, just, I would just like to submit to you that that's a little bit, like not in a morbid way, but that's a little bit of what happens when you start to understand your identity in Christ is that you start to see yourself as a forgiven person and it makes it easier for you to forgive. God would basically come, what he's essentially saying to Jonah is this like, Jonah, do you remember the whole fish thing? Like you remember the whole, remember the whole like you were running from me and um, they threw you in the water and you were gonna die, but I gave you mercy in the form of a fish and that you're only, you're only here because of my grace and mercy. Um, the problem, the reason that Jonah was able to be hateful and violent, violent was because he forgot that he was also a sinner saved by grace. Um, Imagine, imagine the story, let's pretend the story was something like this. Jonah deserved to die, but God showed him mercy. The, the Ninevites also deserved to die, but God showed them mercy. And Jonah saw himself in their story. Like that would be a much better story, but that's not what it is. Jonah, Jonah had to constantly be forgetting his own sin and remembering theirs. That's the only way that it works. Uh, forgiveness begins when you're so humbled by God's grace that you don't feel the right to be angry and yet so affirmed by God's grace that you don't feel the need to be angry. Forgiveness begins when you're so humbled by God's grace that you don't feel the right to be angry and yet so affirmed by the, God's grace that you don't feel the need to be angry. And so uh, as I close, I just have one more, uh, one more thing I, we're probably going to do one more week in Jonah, but I'm kind of trying to wrap up the book a little bit. Uh, but there's this really amazing contrast between Jonah and Jesus. I really, I, I think it's really beautiful. I hope, I hope I can communicate it right. But at the end of the book of Jonah, um, we see Jonah, he's sitting outside of a city, right? A city that could have killed him, but didn't, right? And, he, and he's angry, And then in the Gospels, we see Jesus sitting outside of the city that is going to kill him, and he he weeps over it. And I just just think there's something that's so profound about that. Like, look at these scriptures when it comes to Jesus um, looking at the city that's about to kill him. He would say this, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. How often I have longed to gather you together um, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. My gosh, it's just, it's just such an amazing um, thing that we see here, which is like Jesus Jesus at a place where he's, he's the ultimate example um, of forgiveness. And we can go ahead and get ready for communion. But I think I'm hoping that as I preach more that you're going to see that one thing that is um, a recurring theme is that you would be able to look at the cross and you would see that like that's the standard that sets you right. Like if you, if you ever feel like my mind is starting to go in a weird place, how do I fix that? You go back to the cross. And I, and I think... Especially when it comes to violence and when it comes to anger, you go back to the cross and you remember um, that Jesus showed us how we were supposed to be. Like we wronged him and he forgave us uh, without paying back. Um, and when that becomes real to you, uh, then the anger starts to melt away. Doesn't mean that you don't have conflict. Almost certainly it means that you do have conflict. But you but you're willing, but you're willing to forgive. And that only only in forgiveness as the first step? Are we able to maybe start to move the world, maybe move our city, move our families in a place uh, to where real reconciliation um, can happen? I just wanted to close with this letter. It was written years ago to a pastor um, and he read it and I, I just wanted to share it. I thought it was really beautiful. But um, a letter that was written to him said this, once upon a time, I was engaged to a young lady who changed her mind. I forgave her, but it took me a whole year, and I had to forgive her in small sums over the whole 12 months. I paid these sums whenever I spoke to her and kept myself from rehashing the past. I paid them whenever I saw her with another man and refused self-pity and rehearsal inside for what she'd done to me. And I paid them whenever I uh, praised her to others when I really wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, but she never knew them. However, I never knew her payments, but I know she made them. I could tell. Forgiveness is not only a refusal to hate someone, it's choosing to love and will the good for the offender. It is painful. Listen to this, it's so beautiful. It is painful, but wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness. Yes. Just as Christ's wood and nails were. It leads to healing and more to resurrection. So um, as we close with communion tonight, what I want what I want you to do is I want you to just spend a moment, if you're willing to, just in maybe quiet contemplation and maybe ask, ask yourself this question. Like, are there places where my heart has gone to violence? Like maybe when it comes to your opinion of other people, who, who is it there that maybe you have unforgiveness towards or you're just really sharp with, you know what I mean? In, in a way that Christ isn't with you. Um, and then, and then, and then maybe, ask God and invite God back into those situations to make the cross real to you. And, and the hope would be this, is that when you focus on, on the cross, unforgiveness falls away and it makes um, justice possible. So go ahead and just spend a minute uh, in that place and then we'll receive communion together. Table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. So come to the table. Allow me to pray for you. Father, I come before you just on behalf of this community. We live in a world that really wants to just get us fired up all the time. And I I just think we live in such an inflammatory world that it's hard for us to be um, peacemakers here. And it's hard for us to be people who uh, embody your kindness and your compassion and your grace. And so we just pray when it comes to this issue of anger, and forgiveness that that you would continue to work in us and continue to teach us how to be people in everything that we do that represent you well and that that are that are honoring of you. And for all the people in here that maybe maybe have like real life painful conflicts. They feel like they've legitimately been wounded. And they're kind of on this journey of of paying paying the price of forgiveness uh, and making all of those payments. Father, I would pray that you would continue to show them how to do that well, how that process continues to work when the right time is to confront, uh, when the right time is to just let it go. But Father, we believe that you are the Prince of Peace. And so we ask that you would use us to be peacemakers in this world. And again, we say thank you. So, Jesus, tonight we remember your death. We proclaim your resurrection and we await your return. We remember your death.